our ice cream is nearly, you know, 100% Vermont. We have a, a dairy partner in Northern Vermont, which provides all of our cream and makes custom mixes for us. The primary sweetener is honey, which, you know, there's 80 to 100 hives from Champlain Valley apiaries on our farm. And then we grow almost all the flavor elements and the elements that we don't grow, we source from basically other cool women. So we get our vanilla from this group in Minnesota called the Vanilla Bean Project. We get our coffee from a women owned um, coffee roaster in Burlington called Kestrel Coffee. And then we get our chocolate from this family chocolatier in Ohio called Forbes Chocolatier. You know, I think that's what makes our ice cream different. Like we frequently say, like, we don't just talk about farm to cone, like we are farm to cone. Like other people talk about buying from the farmers, we're the actual farmers. And I think frequently when I tell people like at an event or a farmer's market, like we grow the flavor elements, they envision like four blueberry plants and, you know, eight raspberry plants. And we have, you know, 32,000 row feet of fruit. Hi, I'm Chris Whiteout. Welcome to Living It, the podcast where we join experts in the experience of being human. Be bold, say yes to adventure, say yes to living it. Welcome to Chris Waddell Living It, where we talk with experts in the experience of being human. Those who've taken the risk to realize their dreams and to live fully. Today, we have Becky Castle, who is a co-founder with her husband, Bob, of Sisters of Anarchy Ice Cream. Co-founder, but she also is listed as the mother of anarchy. So we'll get into that as well. And also Fisher Brothers Farm, which is a which is a vertically integrated fruit farm based in Shelburne, Vermont. At Sisters of Anarchy, they don't throw around the farm to cone just because it's a catchy phrase. She and her team grow nearly all of the flavor elements at the farm where they make the ice cream. Sisters of Anarchy celebrates pushy women, pushing the boundaries and aiming for world domination of premium ice cream space. Becky, you're also into social change. I love how the social change, and I can get into, I mean, we'll get into it as we as we talk about this, some of the other things that you've done in your career, but the idea of social change and the idea of ice cream is really interesting because I don't know. I mean, I think everybody should go to your website really is what you what I think. But anyway, welcome and let's get into this. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. I'm excited to, uh, for the conversation. You know, I mean, I think it's so funny because I looked at your website and I really fell in love with the website. I mean, this is, this is, am I allowed to ask? Yeah. Like, who's creating the website? Is this coming from you? Is this coming from the girls? Seems to be coming from the female side. So I'm su- assuming that Farmer Bob is not really the guy writing it, though. That would be really interesting. Well, so that's a good, that's a great question. Um, so Bob is a great, you know, writer. He comes from an advertising background. Before he was a farmer, he worked in film and television. So I think that the website is really co-created. Like he and I both write the copy. Um, but like, I think we've both taken on characters within the website. So like Farmer Bob and all the blogs, we love to make fun of him like make him out to be like a little bit rubish and a technophobe and sort of the the guy like we, that we like to kick around. Um, but, uh, you know, a few years ago, we had this branding audit done and the woman who was advising us was like, Becky, whatever you think is the right thing to do, 
And like, if you think Bob's going in the wrong direction, just ignore what you're thinking because Bob is typically like spot on. I'm always like a little bit afraid to push the boundaries in what we say. And Bob is always like, no, we've got to say this. So, um, you know, I think it's like a co-creation. We, we both participated in it. And then my kids, um, you know, they've really been involved in a ton of the marketing conversations. So now they're 18, 16 and 14. Um, my youngest is actually has changed their pronouns to they, them, and is going by a, a totally different name. Um, their name is now Clark Clark. And I was like, why did you choose to have the first name Clark when your last name is Clark? But that's a totally another story. Um, but they, they really participate in the marketing, marketing conversations as well. And if you listen to the theme song, they're like the voices on the theme song. Um, so they're constantly suggesting like people that we could feature as sister resistors and, you know, they're really involved in the messaging. And, and the messaging, I mean, you're talking about just creating, I mean, it, it, did this come about, is this something that was part of who you were and who yeah. Bob was, but then it grows as a result of having three daughters. And so the voice of the women in broadcasting the voice of women how did, did did it come organically no pun intended really i think it did sort of evolve organically we had always called our kids the sisters of anarchy because they're you know you've met them they're really like uh, a little bit in your face which you know now i feel to some extent like you reap what you sow there's literally not a thing i can say that they don't disagree with like if i say the grass is green they'll be like no it's not um but we, the very first flavor of ice cream we made was this chocolate that I added too much cocoa to. And so we jokingly called it chocolate anarchy. Um, now we've cut back on the cocoa. And then we're like, you know, we should call the brand Sisters of Anarchy. So the first year we made ice cream, it was just called, I don't know, Fisher Brothers Farm ice cream. And then in 2016 or 2017, we actually changed the name to Sisters of Anarchy. So, um, and then, you know, as we talked about it, like since we had always encouraged our kids to, you know, speak up and be advocates for whatever they believed in, it just, you know, the messaging around women, like, and women's empowerment, it just, I think it evolved and was much more of an organic thing than like a conscious um, brand decision at the beginning. And, um, you know, we tend to hire in the summers, I would say almost 100% of the people who work for us on the scooping side are young women. And typically, although not always, we hire female athletes because I just think they have kind of the right attitude and um, are really just like willing to try anything. And, um, you know, frequently what, what, they're, what we're asking them to do is like really hard physical stuff. Like they hook up trailers, they run generators, they troubleshoot mechanical stuff. Um, and so I, you know, I sometimes will joke that they're all going to survive the, the zombie apocalypse because they know how to do practical stuff. They know how to do practical stuff. And is, is that, are they at attracted to you because of who you are? Are they be attracted to you because of ice cream? Yeah. Are they attracted to you because they need a summer job? You know, I don't actually know why people apply for jobs with us. I mean, some of them apply because they love ice cream and they're like, oh, this is a cool website. I'd like to be a part of this. And then other people, I just end up recruiting them. They're like 
friends of my kids or just young women that I know who I think are awesome. And I'm like, come work for us. Um, so, you know, they, they, sometimes they'll seek us out and sometimes I seek them out. And I don't know if many of them know like what I did previously. So, you know, to them, I'm just this person that, you know, scoops a lot of ice cream probably, but we have a lot of time to talk in cars because we're driving to events that are like an hour away. So I do get to know all of the young people that work for us pretty well. What are those conversations like? Are those conversations that kind of come from the website? Are you, are you talking about like, you know, women's, you know, taking, taking over the world of ice cream, taking over, having a broadcasting voice. Yeah. What are you talking about? Oh, we're talking about much more mundane things like, you know, what they're going to write their college essay on and brainstorming about that, or just talking about, you know, challenges of school. Um, it is interesting because I feel like I have like a really good relationship with a lot of the people that work with us, except for my kids. They all like, they don't disdain me, but they're like rolling their eyes at me. And I don't feel like the other people that work for us roll their eyes at me. Um, but I could be wrong. I don't know. No, I'm sure they take you seriously as well. They should take you seriously. How many of the college essays have been written about ice cream? I actually don't know, um, except for one. So my oldest daughter, Lily, just graduated from the local high school. And when she was writing her essay, she wrote it about um, being part of a family business and how like challenging it is and how much she hated working for the business, but then ultimately how valuable it was in terms of learnings. Um, and then my middle daughter, Sunshine is 16, she's a junior. And I was saying, you know, like, you know, she's a very competitive person and very ambitious, but not like in a grimy way. She just, you know, has high aspirations for herself. And I said, well, when you're applying to college, you could really use the farm card. She's like, mom, I'm not gonna use the farm card. And I was like, I can almost guarantee you that you're gonna be like one of the only kids that grew up working on a family farm, like their own family's farm. Um, so who knows whether she will or not, but I know for a fact, Lily wrote her essay on being part of a family business and an ice cream business. Well, and also, I mean, you're going from beginning to end as far as as far as ice cream is concerned, right? Like growing the food, making the ice cream, making the uh, making the food and everything. I mean, it's as a story. How cool is that? Because most of us think that food comes from the supermarket. Yeah, well, that is a great point. So our ice cream is nearly, you know, 100% Vermont. We have a a dairy partner in Northern Vermont, which provides all of our cream and makes custom mixes for us. The primary sweetener is honey, which, you know, there's 80 to hundred hives from Champlain Valley apiaries on our farm. And then we grow almost all the flavor elements and the elements that we don't grow, we source from basically other cool women. So we get our vanilla from this group in Minnesota called the Vanilla Bean Project. We get our coffee from a women owned um, coffee roaster in Burlington called Kestrel Coffee. And then we get our chocolate from this family chocolatier in Ohio called Forbes Chocolatier. So it's like, you know, I think that's what makes our ice cream different. Like we frequently say, like, we don't just talk about farm to cone, like we are farm to cone. Like other people talk about buying from the farmers. We're the actual farmers. Um, and I think frequently when I tell people like at an event or a farmer's market, like we grow the flavor elements, they envision like four blueberry plants and, you know, eight raspberry plants. And we have, you know, 32,000 row feet of fruit. So that's 
I don't know, eight miles worth of fruit. Um, and this year we probably produced 35,000 pounds of fruit, which is like, to me, it's staggering, but it's, it's also really cool. What does 35,000 pounds of fruit look like? So what we do, like one of the things that we do a little differently, um, is we have zero waste at our farm in terms of the harvest. So the day that we pick the fruit, we freeze it. And then like pretty much all day, you know, every day in the summer, we bring all of our fruit to frozen storage, which is like, you know, five miles from our farm. Cause we're basically, you know, five miles from downtown Burlington. Um, and so we have, you know, hundreds of pallets of frozen fruit at the frozen storage warehouse. Um, and we use about 30% of it in ice cream. And then we use 70% of it. We sell to other value added producers. So like Skinny Pancake, I'm sure you're familiar with them. They have like 10 restaurants. They buy all of their blueberries and blackberries from us. Um, Allagash, like Rob Todd's company, he buys, I think this year he bought blackberries, Marquette grapes, and maybe one other type of fruit from us for like the sassons or, you know, the sours that they make. Um, Foam Brewing, Fiddlehead, Stowe Cider, like probably 10 different breweries buy fruit from us, um, which is great. I mean, it's really fun to be part of their kind of farm to, I don't know, glass or pint story um, and, and just be like really be part of the local food scene. Well, it's also you guys are not only part of the local food scene, but you're part of the cool locals food scene, you know, sort of the the micro brew part and and which which is just awesome what is it like being in ice cream in vermont because obviously you know ben and jerry's had a had a little bit of a uh, made an impression on the market there yep yeah um it's interesting i mean right now i i think ben and jerry's ice cream is great but we also love to poke fun at them so like on our pints it says um we are not a Waterbury-based subsidiary of a Dutch multinational. And, um, <laughs> you know, another person that we met at a, at a farmer's market is this guy who's the former chair of Unilever, who lives in Colchester, Vermont. And he saw that on our packaging and he's like, that is brilliant. I love it. His son was like, dad, aren't you offended? And he's like, no, that's great marketing. Um, so I think that, you know, to be part of the Vermont ice cream scene is kind of cool because people expect great ice cream to come out of Vermont. And I think our story is like a pretty unique one. Um, and it builds on sort of the history of Vermont ice cream. History of Vermont ice cream, but also your personal history, right? So how did, how did you and Bob get into making ice cream? Yeah. So, um, so when we moved from California, we had, you know, we had met at Middlebury, as you know, and then we had lived in Atlanta for 10 years and then in California for 10 years. And then we both got sick of sort of the being so far away from family. So we decided to move back to Vermont in 2011. And we knew that we wanted to do something in agriculture. And we looked around for existing properties to buy, didn't find one that would suit what we wanted to do. So we just bought the current property where our farm is with, it had nothing on it. It was like a former dairy farm, but it didn't even have a building. It was just a piece of land. So, um, when we wrote our business plan, we knew we wanted to do fruit, but it's really hard to make money in farming unless you have a value added product. And we both love ice cream. And when we first started dating, 
um, we had an ice cream problem and we were living in Hood River, Oregon. And um, we decided that we would only eat ice cream if we hand cranked it ourselves. So we basically would hand crank ice cream like every single night. Um, so, you know, that was a summer of probably 60 times of making hand crank ice cream, like using the white mountain creamer that you crank with the rock salt and ice. Right. Um, so we decided that we wanted to make ice cream our value added product. And, you know, a batch freezer costs like $25,000, which we didn't have the money for that when we first started. So we actually used white mountain creamers for the first two years of making ice cream. They were like mechanized, but it was a very rudimentary process. So it would take us an entire week to make 30 gallons of ice cream because we were doing it in this very super small batch way of using rock salt and ice in a one and a half quart container. Um, it was very cumbersome. Um, and now like there's days that we make 30 gallons or more of ice cream. I mean, we can crank out probably a hundred gallons of ice cream in a day if we needed to. So the way we started was, you know, a lot different than the way we do things now. But I think that has a lot to do with like our philosophy is we don't know what we don't know. And, and basically we don't think we know very much. So we're like, okay, like whoever we can find that knows something, like we're happy to listen to advice and guidance. Well, it's also, I mean, talk about it. It's, it's like, you're really hand making yeah. the ice cream initially. Initially, it was so uh, small batch. I mean, everything was a small batch process. I think back to it and I'm like, we were insane. It was just like, so also physical, like ice cream making is a physical activity. Bags of cream weigh a lot. You know, the machinery is like really heavy. And, you know, I don't make ice cream on a day-to-day -day basis, but even the scooping part of it, it's like a very physically demanding thing. So were you burning as many calories making the ice cream as you were getting from the ice cream when you got to eat it? You know, you don't, I mean, I still love ice cream, but I probably only eat ice cream like once every other week. Um, Bob eats ice cream and beer for lunch every single day. It's probably not the healthiest philosophy, but um, we call it the farmer's diet. Um, so he probably does burn as many calories as he consumes in ice cream and beer. Well, he's also, he's supporting you guys and he's supporting your your fellow your fellow uh, yeah beer makers and things like that yeah when you guys first started making ice cream yeah. did you get crazy with like different flavors did you start with okay i'm going to start with chocolate something that i feel like can be successful because you also want to be able to eat it right afterwards yeah. right how risky were you uh, we weren't that risky. I mean, we we really wanted to make ice cream that used the fruit that we grew. So, but this we, is when you first started, when you and Bob were back in in Hood River. Oh, oh, back when we were in Hood River. Oh, actually, we had this. Um, the White Mountain Creamer machine came with an ice cream recipe book, and we would just try different recipes in the ice cream recipe book. So, you know, whatever the White Mountain Creamer recipe book said, that's what we tried. Um, so we didn't go very crazy. We did make this really great grapefruit sorbet, but it was so time intensive. It took like five hours of prep. We were like, okay, that was great, but it took way too long. So we're not making that one again. Um, but yeah, when we first started, yes, we tried everything. But then when we started making ice cream commercially, we wanted to focus on things that use the flavors that we grew. So initially it was kind of like your Julie Julia kind of thing that you guys were of ice cream, the version yeah. of ice cream. 
Yeah. Yeah. So like our raspberry ice cream called raspberry beret, it's like, you know, there's only probably six ingredients. The primary one is raspberries. Um, and we don't cook the raspberries. We prepare them in another way. Um, so it, the flavor really comes out. And that's one of the key things that we want to focus on. Like we don't want like marshmallow and peanuts and a whole bunch of other stuff that's going to muck up the flavor. It's really about like bringing the flavor of the berry through. With that first batch, did you get ice cream that you said, okay, this is this is something that we can share with the general public or... Is it like, well, this is kind of close and we need to figure out some other stuff. How did that first batch work out? Or when did you figure out you could really make it? It was part of our business plan. I mean, fruit is a perennial thing. So, you know, you put fruit plants in the ground the first year and you have no production. In fact, we intentionally pull all of the flowers off the fruit the first year so that the energy can go to the root development. So our first, we put our plants in the ground 2015 and then we had our first fruit 2016, but not very much. So in order to have any revenue, we had to have ice cream that was suitable for selling. Um, so, I mean, vanilla is pretty basic. The chocolate that we first made, I mistakenly put double the amount of cocoa in and it was so thick, it wouldn't go in the ice cream maker. So I had to like blend it in the blender first and then put it in the ice cream maker. But people totally loved it. Like we have this one customer um, who, came the very first day and he's still a customer of ours and he loved the chocolate ice cream and he came back probably every week the entire time that we've been in business. So we did cut back on the chocolate some, but you know, we, it, you know, I don't think making great ice cream is that hard if you use really good ingredients. Well, that's exactly what you guys do. And sometimes your mistakes are, are your greatest wins too, right? Totally. Yeah. And like, you know, I know, uh, I actually, I know a lot of people at Ben and Jerry's because it's a small town. And I was talking to somebody on their supply chain side and he was like, yeah, it takes us 18 months from concept to getting something on the shelf with a new flavor. And us, like it probably takes us, now that we do printed packaging, it probably takes us a few months, but actually making the flavor, we do like four or five experimentations. We do some taste tests and then like, we're like, okay, that's the recipe we're using. So it's like not that complicated. And like I said, like you can't mess it up that badly if you have awesome ingredients. What did you decide to plant? Because because you do have the fruits and you have, as you said, the rainbow of, of different fruits. What, did you decide what you were going to do? Did you have to, was there experimentation on, on that as well? There's been, like, I would say it's an evolution. So we put in... Um, Right now we grow blackberries, blueberries, raspberries, aronia berry, elderberry, Marquette grapes, and a type of peppermint. And um, over time, we've realized that the things that are most kind of successful in the market are the blackberries and the yellow raspberries. So we're tending to double down on those, but the red raspberries still do really well. The aronia and the elderberry, you know, we're finding more markets for that and more products that we can make with those. Um, the Marquette grapes are kind of interesting. They're like the least valuable thing that we grow, but now they're in the ground. So we take care of them and we typically sell them to breweries. Like we don't want to sell them to wineries because wineries are not going to want to pay, you know, as good of a price as the breweries and the breweries can't get the grapes from elsewhere. 
like I frequently think like if we had to do it over, would we plant grapes? I don't know. Like, I'm not sure we would because like our philosophy is we want to be as high on the value chain as we can be. So like, how can we take, you know, this red raspberry and get as much value in the market as possible? If you sell it wholesale, probably not very much. If you sell it to a brewery, you're going to get a lot more. If you make it into ice cream, you're going to get even more value out of it. Interesting. Is that anything that you had considered before you came in? You put your business plan together. Yeah. But you weren't really a farmer. No, not at all. So Bob is from a, um, he is from a dairy farming family in upstate New York. So he was somewhat familiar with farming. And then in my previous life, I had um, run a foundation called Earth University Foundation, which raises money for this agricultural university in Costa Rica, which is super cool. Um, but there they um, have all of their students run a business their third year in school. And the business typically is a value added food business because it's an agricultural university. So I kind of- what value added food business means. Um, so a value added food business is basically taking the raw product that you grow and turning it, like turning it into a product that's going to like bring more money um, than the raw product would. So, you know, frequently in farming, um, if you are a farmer of a commodity and you just sell the commodity, you have to work at huge volumes to make any money. If you're a farmer of like a specialty crop, you, like a fruit, you could probably make more money. But the way that you're going to do best in farming is if you have a value added product, like where you are taking the product yourself and turning it into something more valuable and selling it. I mean, I think the challenge is though, you have to be such a multifaceted person, like such a Renaissance person. You need to understand finance and how to grow the stuff, how to make the stuff, all the food safety regulations. How are you going to market it? Like you have to have a marketing budget. Like, you know, basically if Bob and I weren't doing this together, I, like I don't think we could do it because he has one set of skills and I have another set of skills and they're really complementary. And you have some solidarity within within this market as well within with the beer companies and but also looking at like it's getting to be that time of the year, right? Where where the apples are picked and then yeah. and then again a value added where you get the apple pies, you get the cider, you get these kinds of things. Do you do you interact? How does it work with some of those other industries? We do have really good kind of trade relationships. Some of them are with people that we um, just know and find solidarity with. So there's this other farm um, that we work a lot with called Maple Wind Farm. They do pasture raised animals. So they do like turkeys, chickens, they're starting to do more value added stuff, making sausage and meat sticks and that type of thing. Um, but we just get along so well with the couple that runs the farm. And uh, we go out to dinner with them like, you know, once every two months and we jokingly call ourselves the stupid farmers of America, SFA. <laughs> um, but like, so we, you know, with them, it's more like talking about the challenges and like sharing information that could be helpful to the other person. Um, you know, like sometimes we share workforce, um, like with a lot of our wholesale buyers. So we have um, like, you know, healthy living as a grocery store here in town. Like we've gotten to know the buyer there really well. And he's always looking for opportunities to promote us. 
Um, there's another farm down the road called Bread and Butter Farm, actually started by another Middlebury graduate. And, you know, they buy ice cream from us. Like we have, like we've run out of room in our barn. So they're going to store a tractor over the winter. I mean, there's all sorts of like little things that evolve. Um, and you end up having, you know, you figure out like who are the people that you really get along with great. I mean, I would say it's most everybody because we're all in the same really challenging industry. Well, because farming really is a challenging industry because there are no days off. Oh my God, that's like, oh, that's such a good point. Like literally we took two days off this summer and the amount of effort it took to prepare to take those two days off, I was like, this is totally not worth it. It would have just been easier to work those two days. But we, we work nonstop. I mean, I just can't even convey the level of effort. Like on Saturday, we didn't have any scooping events and we didn't have to actually do farming. And I was like, this is what people do with their Saturdays. Like you wake up and you drink your coffee and you read your book. And then like, I don't know, you go out to brunch. I, we hadn't done that in so long. You forget what it's like. Do you feel that you connect more with the, I mean, you, you are farmers, right? So, so is it a different kind of relationship that you now have with your land with, because, because it's such a, it's such a symbiotic kind of relationship, right? I mean, you're feeding it, it's feeding you. Yes and no. I mean, there's moments like yesterday, I drove into the farm like at 4.30 or five in the afternoon and it was like golden hour. And I was like, oh my God, like this is amazing. It's so beautiful. Um, but then there's other times where like, I'm there at 5.30 in the morning, getting ready for something and just grinding it out. And I'm like, oh my God, like, what am I doing? <laughs> so I would like to say yes, all the time. I have this romantic relationship with the land. Sometimes I do, but sometimes I'm like, I just got to get this stuff done. That is interesting. So I want to take a little bit of a step back just in terms of some of the things that you did coming out of school where you were working with the Carter Center and working with, with President and Mrs. Carter early on. Uh, you mentioned Earth University Foundation, uh, Consultant and Sustainable Food Lab, uh, Partner Project Resource Group, which then became the Development uh, Vision, which you are continuing as a, uh, as a principal consultant. Uh, and, and then, you know, and then also business development advisor with ThinkMD. So you have all of this social change stuff that, you know, oftentimes I'm assuming that you were probably a little bit more dressed up yep. than you are when you're going to the farm. Yep. How did, how did what you thought coming out of school, what you were going to do, how did that get shaped as you went through all these various and really impressive steps? Yeah, I, first of all, I had no idea what I wanted to do graduating from school. I was so aimless. Like I look back at my 21 year old self and I'm like, God, you were clueless. You know, like I just had no idea. I don't know if you had an idea like what you wanted to do when you graduated. I, had I was going to be a ski racer. So really... Not, not a practical decision, you know, I was going to live on couches and, and follow this dream. Well, you got to do it. So that's good. <laughs> but yeah, like I had no idea what I was going to do um, when I graduated. And I think that all of these various professional experiences I had, I mean, 
initially, I think I thought that I could like plan life. And I, I don't think that's really possible. I think you have to be open to serendipity. You just have no idea what a certain opportunity is going to lead to or provide like insight into. So, um, you know, I, I went to Latin America right after, oh no, I worked in DC after graduating from Middlebury and some banking job that was super boring. Then I had a fellowship in Latin America. And after that, I was like, I wanna work internationally. But I kept skirting with the private sector, which I actually never worked in the private sector. I always worked for not-for-profits. Um, and I think that suited me much better than the private sector world. I mean, I'm sure I would have done fine in it, um, but I loved doing work that I felt made a difference in people's lives. Um, and especially I, I, working with the Carter Center was great. And in addition to, you know, working with President and Mrs. Carter and other kind of world leaders, um, I had a really fantastic boss there, this guy whose name was Bob Pastor. He's since died, but he was like the classic academic entrepreneur. So he was an academic, but he also was like, you know, consulting with different companies. And he was like a really intellectually curious person. And I would say he was the best person that I ever worked for because he had like really high expectations, but he was also working really hard. And I just learned a ton from him. Um, but then when I moved into the global health consulting, it was fascinating because all of my clients work in different subject areas. Like I work a ton or I used to work a ton on diarrheal disease and on pneumonia, and I've worked on HIV AIDS and on livelihoods and sustainable agriculture. And every single project I did, like you had to learn something new and you know get a certain level of knowledge about whatever it is you were um, working on. And my job was really to translate whatever the researcher or scientist or NGO was doing into like a compelling story that would be attractive to donors whether it was like a big foundation donor or a high net worth individual or a corporation that might be interested in the topic and, you know, see some synergy with what their business was. So it was like, that work is really fun because it like, it like um, taps into like sort of the intellectual curiosity that I think we all have. Um, so I've always enjoyed that. Well, you said a, a certain level of knowledge, which I think is probably a certain level of expertise mm -hmm. within, within to be able to speak the language, but then you're, you're also raising money, which might be a job that is akin to farming in terms of how difficult it can be. I mean, most people yeah. really don't want to try to raise money. But the other part that you're talking about is that you had this sense that you wanted to, that you wanted to help people. Mm -hmm. Do, can you, where, where was the origin of that? I mean, not that, not that you wouldn't want to help people, but yeah. that as a vocation. Oh, yeah, actually, that's pretty interesting. And I've thought about this before. So I have three siblings um, and growing up, my dad was like a self-made person. He grew up in sort of very ordinary circumstances, but got a, a scholarship to college and to law school. And then he was a Marine officer. And, you know, I lived in New Canaan, which is this really affluent town. Anyway, my dad would always tell us like, you are so lucky and have so much good fortune. Like it's incumbent on you to give back. And then interestingly, we all ended up working in the not-for-profit world. So my oldest brother for a while, for probably 15 years, he worked with 
um, mentally disabled adults as a group home coordinator. My sister is um, chief development officer for this group in DC called Food and Friends where um, they make uh, really nutritious meals. It's basically the philosophy is of food as medicine for um, people that are homebound with chronic conditions. And then my brother is a teacher and a coach. So my dad, before he died, would say like, you know, I think it's great that you guys all followed my philosophy, but like, could one of you make some money? <laughs> so anyway, I, I think that my like inclination toward helping people was really like my dad's philosophy that it's incumbent on me because I had good fortune to do that. And that started when you were really young, I'd imagine. Yeah, really young. Like we, um, we were members of the congregational church in town and um, we had a ton of like community service that we would do together. Um, like in high school, I did fellowship trips with the congregational church. And then, you know, I always did like volunteer work and my parents thought that was really important. Did it make it easier to raise the money to go and ask people? Was the sales pitch easier as a result? I actually, I don't find it difficult to ask for money for something that I really believe in. So, you know, I would say almost all of the, the fundraising that I've done with individuals, with high net worth individuals, it's all about programs that I'm like, I feel passionate about and I feel like they're making a real difference. And then as a consultant over time, I really honed in on the clients that, you know, I felt were doing great work and had really good monitoring and evaluation and the, that their programs were having an impact. Um, and then fundraising from institutional donors, like big foundations, I mean, they have to give away a certain amount of money. So it's your job as a fundraiser to make sure that you're um, putting forth, you know, a compelling story about what your client is doing um, and how it's going to help that donor reach their goal. Like basically the job is to package your client's work in such a way that it's demonstrating to the donor, like you have this goal to do, you know, whatever the thing is, and this project is going to help you achieve that goal. And you've worked with the big people, right? I mean, you, you're talking about the Carters that you worked with, you've, you've worked with the Gateses, with the Gates Foundation, and, and shaping that positioning yourself in a way the the validity of of what you're doing how much of a challenge was that i mean obviously you're you're joining some great groups yeah. but to to really demonstrate your ability to you know to address diarrhea to to address malaria to change people's lives in such a profound way that we're not really aware of as as americans right we don't contend with a lot of these issues i mean to me it's like um there's like a certain level of humility. You know, I really believe that um, everybody wants the same thing, right? Like we all want access to health and education and opportunity, like at the most basic level. And so like you may meet, you know, a mom in, you know, Kenya or Nigeria, and that mom wants the exact same thing that your mom wanted for you. And so like, I think if you like, put the humility hat on and think about it in the context of like, yeah, there's like this bigger strategy for the program that you're raising money for, but ultimately it's to benefit, you know, whatever person is at the receiving end of the project. Um, and I also think really listening 
carefully, like a lot of the, you know, fundraising is writing something like whether it's a proposal or a case for support. And so really listening to people and like what they're saying and like how their, you know, specific approach is going to make a difference. I think that's really important. Um, and, you know, you end up being friends with the people that you're working with. So I really, I, I think one of the reasons that I've been successful in fundraising is I love the relationship part of it. I love like, you know, getting to know the the Ethiopian program director of, you know, what other, whatever organization I'm working with. And like, I know all about their kids and like, you know, how they're doing in school and like what personal things they're is are happening in their lives it really is a partnership and you ultimately are working together in that partnership yeah and they're the experts i'm just the person like translating not the language but like translating their ideas onto paper to make it compelling to make it compelling how much of looking at things from a fundamental kind of way because mm -hmm. you you look at it and and you see people where it's effectively it, it's life and death oftentimes yeah how much have, has that shaped the way that your narrative goes now in looking at like the ice cream and I, and I see a couple of like you know just going through like like looking at, at some of your heroes there uh you know where, where Adichie was saying that uh the problem with gender is that it shapes who we are yeah and you look at some of these things these are some pretty pointed statements that come out of, you know, I'm assuming a fair amount of learning as well. What's your question exactly? <laughs> What's my question exactly? How much of, of seeing this world where, where it can be such a tenuous existence shapes the way that you, uh, that, that, that you, that it shapes your opinions, shapes the statements that you make and because it doesn't seem like you're too bounded in terms of the the statements, it seems like you're you're pretty willing to to go out there and be really bold. Well, I think frequently, like the you know when we pick like sister resistors, which we actually haven't done very much of that this summer because we've been so busy. So I look at winter as an opportunity to like feature some really cool women. Um, but I think frequently, like I end up picking people who are like personal heroes of mine, you know? So like one sister resistor that we featured is this woman, Leith Greenslade, who I've done a ton of work with and she is amazing. She has done so much for child health around the world. Nobody would have ever heard of her, but you know, she's like this amazing advocate and she, you know, finds people doing amazing stuff and figures out ways to support them. And I just think what she's doing is so impressive and cool. And so I'm like, well, you know what? It's my company. I can feature whoever I want. <laughs> so, but then other times, like we'll end up featuring people who are, are more like concepts. So like in the next week, we're going to feature the women and girls of Iran as sister resistors, you know, how impressive it is that mostly young women have risked their lives and, you know, imprisonment to stand up for their personal freedom. It's so cool and like inspirational. It's cool and inspirational. And and I'd imagine as the mother of all anarchy, you are also an educator, right? Mm -hmm. So this is how much of the give and take is there between your daughters, you and your daughters who roll their eyes at you, but probably listen to you more than they want you to know. Right. 
how much of that happens and how much do you think about like i i i need to be responsible for for helping them find great heroes yeah I think, um, you know, going back to what we talked about, I think before the official interview started, like you reap what you sow, um, my kids are total activists, um, which is great. Like, I'm really proud of them for, you know, standing by their principles and standing up for what they believe in. But I'm trying to encourage them to like, use their activism for good. You know, it's, it's, easy to just complain and, you know, say like, this is what's wrong. And, you know, I can't believe this and be really negative. Um, but I, yeah, I, I definitely, you know, I think that they have listened to me over time because I, I hear them parroting things back, but disagreeing with me while they do it, which is good also. <laughs> um, but like my middle daughter right now, she's really interested in um, menstrual hygiene and making sure that young women around the world have, you know, access to menstrual products. And so she's doing like a menstrual products drive. And um, I just, I'm excited that she has taken that upon herself and, you know, has decided like, this is something that's really important to me and I'm really lucky and I want other people to have, um, you know, the same access that I have. It's an interesting question. I find, I mean, just sort of being on the disability side of things, yeah, you know, I, I see things as as a you know as, as the as as much of an insider as I could possibly be, right? Being a an, a middle aged white male, but at the same time, yeah, I'm I'm on the outside in yeah. certain ways, and one of the ways that I try to approach this is is in trying not to make anybody wrong, right? Yeah in trying to find where we actually come together. And it sounds like that's what you're talking about with your daughters is this sense of like, okay, let's not, let's not, let's not say that this is wrong. That's wrong. We're protesting it, but what's a potential solution? How do we, how do we get through a solution? Which to me is such an amazing education. And, and there's a constant dialogue. So like my, you know, I mentioned my youngest is non-binary and using they, them pronouns and I'll frequently say something and they'll be like, mom, you can't talk about it that way. Like <laughs> maybe they haven't learned like the whole, like nobody's wrong idea, which I like that. Um, especially mom. Yeah, especially mom, mom is always wrong. Um, but like I've learned so much from them just because they have a totally different perspective. Um, and it's a perspective, like think when we were back in college, like. I, I can't think of anybody that was out of the closet in college, maybe like one or two people. Right. Yeah. And definitely the concept of non-binary or transgender, it was, it was non-existent. Like I try to describe this to my kids and they're like, what? They don't even understand a world where those weren't terms that were used kind of in everyday language or where schools talked about inclusivity. Like in my high school, I think there was one person who was out of the closet during high school in that 1200 person high school. Right, which is typically what 10% of the population. Yeah. So, you know, the numbers would mean that there would be more than one, significantly more than one, but. Yeah, exactly. They, they weren't out of the closet. How much does do your kids share with their peers, like their their classmates? Is it a is it a similar kind of interaction with them? In terms of like- In terms beliefs. of, you know, I mean, some of like like the female activism, some of the, 
the non non-binary stuff? Is it is it where they can have a really good conversation as opposed to effectively being shunned or how does that all work? I think that um, it's it's difficult to navigate when you're you know 13 or 14 years old. And so there's some people that are really receptive, but then I think it's also difficult because they don't necessarily understand yet that you may not um, get everybody to listen to you if you use a hammer to provide the message. And so I think there's a lot of people that just turn them off and that maybe that comes with maturity, like to try to convey a message so that nobody's wrong and it's just more like, hey, this is my perspective. So I think that there's varying degrees of, um, of how their peers, you know, perceive them. And like, you know, just as an example of my youngest last year during the hockey season, they were very frustrated. And I think a lot of it was around, you know, pronouns that the coaches would use or that the other kids would use. And they were just really angry. And I'm like, you know, it's just, it's a challenge for some people. They don't even know about this concept and you have to be like, show a little bit more grace um, in how you talk about it. But that's an entirely different relationship than we had as kids, right? Where coaches and teachers were right, effectively, because they yeah. were the adults. Whereas right. now the coaches and teachers are getting challenged by the students and the athletes who are more informed and have more of a vested interest yeah. in, in certain topics. And so how does that, how does that how does that dynamic play out? I mean, it's a really interesting because it's also, I mean, it's it's funny because I think that like when you and I were kids, if we got in trouble in school, it was our fault. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Where that's changed as well, oftentimes, where it's not the student's fault, it's the teacher's fault, or it's the administrator's fault sometimes, or at least that's part of the argument sometimes. I think it is, I mean, there's, it's a good news, bad news thing. I, I think some of the changes that have occurred since we were kids are really good. Um, but then also I feel like this is totally philosophical, but um, I feel like teachers give so much like grace period to students that there's not as much accountability. You know, so like my oldest, like, I don't even think she finished turning in all of the things to graduate for high school, yet she graduated. And I kept saying to the teachers, I'm like, if she hasn't turned the stuff in, fail her, please fail her. And they're like, well, this is going on and that's going on. I'm like, but she'll never learn that she has to actually turn things in if you don't fail her. So, I mean, I think it's, there's some good news about teachers being more willing to listen to kids, but I, I do wish that there was more like, you know, holding kids to account. How much, we'll get back to ice cream. How much is ice cream helpful in bringing a variety of different people, a variety of different opinions yeah. together? Uh, that's a good question. I don't like, we haven't really like explored that that much. I mean, during COVID, I think we did a lot of work around bringing people from the community together. Because as you recall, there was, you know, you had to have social distancing. And in Vermont, we were very kind of strict on COVID measures. So there were not many places where you could assemble where there was enough space for people to congregate. 
So our farm really became a, a place for people to go. Like every Friday we'd have, you know, a food truck and a musician and people would get on their blankets spread all over, you know, the fields to just be in a social space where they could be, you know, socializing safely. So we did a little bit of that. Um, we've done a little bit of convening other women business owners. Um, but in terms of like being a venue or having ice cream as a vehicle for bringing people of different opinions together, I suppose it happens, but we haven't really like done that very much. Like we state our opinion publicly and we always respond to people who disagree with us in emails or however, um, but I haven't really done much intentional, like bringing people of different opinions together through ice cream. Yeah, but it's interesting you're talking about bringing people together, especially during COVID, and especially because you've talked about this a few times during the during our talk is that you've brought you've you've sought out mentors. You've tried. I mean, being being a farmer, being a small business owner, being a family business owner is it's a really those are really hard jobs. I mean, it's all the same job, I guess, in some ways, but. Yeah. It's a hard job. And that support, I mean, it's interesting that support and how does support work that way? I mean, is it, is part of it going out and creating a, a, a network? Yeah, I think it is like the, the network that we have now supporting us is so much more developed than when we first started. Although, like I said before, like we have a philosophy that we don't really know anything um, and so we've constantly listened to like Bob is, you know, friends with a lot of the old timer farmers that maybe a lot of people don't listen to anymore. Cause he's like, well, they have some knowledge base that I don't have. Um, and now I would say our support comes in many different forms. Like, you know, this good friend of mine is, um, she's worked in finance for years. So like when I have a finance question, I'm like, Kim, you know, can you help me? And she's always like, yes, of course. And, you know, I give her a few, three pints of ice cream and she's like, this is great. And I'm like, this is great. Um, and then Love the farter system. Yeah, <laughs> exactly. And then there's other people who are just older um, and wiser, like the guy that I was mentioning, who's the former chair of, of Unilever. He is just, you know, retired and likes interesting things. And so I kind of feel like he's adopted us as, our, as his project. But I'm like totally psyched because he knows way more about marketing consumer products than I'll ever know. So it's amazing to have access to that resource. Um, but I also feel like it goes both ways. Like I love it when I find somebody who I think is doing really good stuff and I can be helpful to them. So like there's a lot of people in the food truck world that I've gotten to know well. And, um, and you know, if there's an event I know about that's going to be really good, then I'll reach out to the food trucks that I think are really good people, and I'll be like, "You should do this event." Um, so I think it's like a virtuous circle, you know, like you end up getting help from a lot of people, but hopefully also helping a lot of people. Yeah, I mean, that's that's kind of the cool part is is it gets to be more about your community yeah. and about continuing to learn. Right. In this in this business that provides you so many opportunities to learn because you're never going to know everything about it. Yeah, exactly. I mean, Bob and I frequently are like, God, this would be so much fun if we had unlimited capital. The real stressor and being a small business person is like, 
gosh, we're going to double our revenue this year. How are we going to find the working capital to do that? And like, oh, geez, like we can't pay this credit card bill because we don't have enough, you know, like our credit limit's not enough. So we have to like pay the bill off before we can do this next thing we want to do. Um, that's like a very real thing <laughs> that we deal with, not on a daily basis, but frequently. Um, yeah, I mean, sleepless nights are totally related to capital, like the money in the bank, I would say. But there's other sleepless nights too, but I would say largely it's that. So those are the sleepless nights. What's the biggest payoff of what you do? I would say like, we'll get like an email, like, you know, during the year of COVID. And again, like, I don't know why I get choked up about this stuff, but it makes me feel like really good, but also emotional. Um, at the end of the summer of 2020, like our last food truck night, like I had probably four or five parents come up to me and say like, oh my God, like, I'm so glad you guys were open. You were the only thing we could do this summer. And I was like, wow, that's like pretty amazing to be like the place that people could go and congregate. Um, and we also had, a, um, like in June or July of that summer, there was a little girl playing on our playground at the farm. And it was the first time she'd left her house since March. Oh. And I was like, wow, <laughs> like that's crazy. So, I mean, that type of thing, or like when you get like a fan email saying like, oh my God, I just tried your ice cream and it's like so good. And like we have, I feel like we have a real connection to a lot of our customers and, and we feel like that's our superpower. Like if you, you know, call customer service at Amazon, if you could even get somebody on the phone, it's going to be some random person somewhere. If you call our customer service, it's going to be me or Bob or like the person that makes the ice cream. And we're going to, answer the phone and actually care about the answer, you know? And know what you're talking about as well. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So, I mean, we're still that size where the person answering the phone is probably, you know, well, it's going to be one of the five or six people that work with us full time. And, and how many states are you in now? Where can people get your ice cream? Well, so we're primarily like in retail locations in Vermont and a little bit in New Hampshire. Um, and we also ship nationwide. So we've shipped to, I think, every state in, um, in the U.S. except Alaska. So we're still looking. If you know anybody in Alaska that loves ice cream, we need to get ice cream. You know, we need to send them ice cream. So, okay. I think I can do that. I think I can help you out with that. Yeah. All right. That's good. Then we can say we've shipped to every state in the U.S. Um, so primarily the mail order is how we're getting ice cream outside of Vermont. And then we do want to get a distribution relationship at some point, but the problem is distributors charge, you know, 30% and then the retailers want 30%. So as a small producer, the economics don't make sense until you're at a certain scale. But I think that will probably happen within the next 18 months. We'll probably have some distribution where we can cover most of New England. And, and and are you in it for the long haul or how does this, how, how, five-year plans, how does it work? Yeah, how does it, how does it work out? We would like to have free time someday. Um, so I think we're probably in it for the next three to five years. Um, and then our hope is that we can, you know, sell the business to somebody who wants to take it to the next level. Like we're gonna take it to a certain level, but I don't know if I can take it to the, the big, huge, you know, national level. Maybe, maybe I'll change my mind. And in five years, I'll be like, 
yes, I'm going to be the person that takes this, you know, national. Um, but I think probably it will be like, we'll get acquired. I mean, that's our hope anyway. I think what you guys are doing is just so cool. I mean, just the idea of farm to cone. I love the idea of farm to cone when it really is farm. And it really, you know, a lot of it is not moving from the farm. It, 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 it gets picked, it becomes, it becomes ice cream on some level. So I just think it's so cool, but also you know, your story about the community and about people as the the place that they could go, being a place that people can go, I don't know if there's any higher compliment, so. Yeah, no, it, it really was like pretty awesome, but it, it totally gets me choked up every time I think about it. <laughs> yeah, no, that's as, as well it should because you're, you're providing such an amazing service and you probably weren't aware that you were providing. Yeah. You know, exactly. it's not intentional necessarily, other than it's intentional of creating a great place to come. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah. Well, Becky, thank you so much for joining us. This was just so much fun. And, and uh, yeah, I think I'm going to be in, in Vermont in November. So I'm All gonna right. Well, to... we're going to see you for dinner. Like, definitely let us know when you're coming and we'll get a group together and, and go out. This would be so much fun. Well, thank you so much for joining us. It's such a pleasure. Keep up the great work. Thank you to all of you for tuning in. I hope you've enjoyed it. If you have, please tell your friends. Please like us. Please follow us. It'll make it much easier for us to have another great guest next week. Thanks very much. Take care. Thank you for joining us. Please subscribe to Chris Waddell Living It for more stories on the adaptive community, the Paralympics, artists, athletes, entrepreneurs, experts in the experience of being human. Also follow us on Spotify, Apple, Facebook, and Instagram. I look forward to seeing you next week.